Good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Sam Fankhauser. I'm director of the Grantham Research Institute here at the LSE. It's my great pleasure to welcome you all to this lecture and uh, to welcome part of the Skupta back to the LSE, I, I suppose. Um, Partha has a, a very distinguished uh, CV, but uh, one aspect of it is, is relatively simple, which is the, sort of the, his main academic homes, and it reads PhD in Cambridge, and he is still in Cambridge. Uh, but in between, there's a crucial 14 years uh, where he says he learned economics, uh, where he was at the LSE, which was sort of in, the, in the 1970s and 1980s. So it's great, uh, Partha, to, to have you back. Uh, it's great to, to have you talk about something that is uh, very, very topical, uh, sort of a long-standing topic, the uh, question of how many people the Earth can support. When I say long-standing, uh, most of you will remember at school you learned about Malthus, and Malthus is worried that population growth will lead to, uh, to poverty. So that was in, in 1798. Uh, you can fast forward to, to this summer, where I read uh, during my summer break an article, I think it was in the Independent, I don't quite remember which paper, which said that the environmentally most damaging thing you can do is having children. Uh, that was uh, what that insight was, and I think the insight was that children are more damaging than flying around and eating meat because uh, children grow up to fly around and eat meat. <laughs> so I think that was, that was that particular insight. But what you see from, from that anecdote is that we probably have to sort of apply the best brains that we have available to, to grapple with that problem of uh, how many people the Earth can support. And Partha will be that person. He's... he's uh, thought about population since his, since his PhD days. I think that's, that's correct. But obviously has done a lot of other things as well. Um, I think he, most people will say he is one of the most eminent environmental economists that we have. For me, he probably gets the vote for the most eminent environmental economist that we have. Basically, you can't do environmental economics or natural resource economics without reading his work. So it's not just the population uh, part of his career, but also the natural resource economics, the environmental economics part of his career. And with those words of introduction, Partha, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Can you... Um, not sure I know how, how far I should be. Can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Absolutely? Good. If I move around and you lose me, just shout. And I'll hear you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a, a real pleasure to be back here. As Sam said, I, I grew up here. I uh, came as a lecturer and then left for a variety of reasons. Nothing to do with the LSE. It's more children than uh, my own research interests changing somewhat. Uh, but this is my intellectual home, so it's lovely to be here. Now, I thought I'd talk on what I have been working on for the last year or so, re-enter the subject which has always interested me as an economist, particularly uh, because nobody else works on it. 
as an economist. Its population is not, demographic issues are not central to the economist's uh, thinking. Certainly you won't have any demographic lectures in economics courses. Uh, and yet, of course, it's central to our lives. We are born into families and occasionally ask our parents uh, how come we are here. And we, many of us, actually end up having children and, if you're lucky, have grandchildren, in this, lucky in the sense of living long enough to see them. So it's, a, uh, it's part of our life and it's part of pretty much everything else we do. It's related to everything else we do. And I'm an eco economic theorist by training and inclination, so I feel there must be a coherent way of thinking about these issues, these activities we engage in and how they're related to one another, even although they manifest themselves very, very differently in different parts of the world. And the trick is to be able to find out, identify the reasons why the differences occur. And if you're environmentally minded as I am, I, one of my first port of calls will be to look at the ecology of the place. Is it a river valley? Is it a mountain terrain? Is it a, uh, uh, is it a coastal zone? And then see whether the kinds of norms of behavior uh, that, they, that they are enshrined in their communities make sense as solutions to resource allocation problems. So it's a... Uh, it's not an easy subject, but it's a, uh, it's a compelling one. Now, at my age, sometimes I do ask, why have I done the kind of research I've done? And then, of course, you can, you can rationalize it. It's always exposed. It's always possible to find a, a thread uh, driving you. Most of it is cooked up. But nevertheless, you, if you feel it satisfactory, you pursue it. The, in some sense, pretty much all I've done in the field of demo demography, environmental economics, and poverty studies has really uh, been a, to a, a response to a, the following dilemma that are that's very sharp now, but it was beginning to look important even when I was a uh, young lecturer here at the LSE. But it's now very sharp. There's a puzzle. So on the one hand, I'm thinking now the global economy. So don't think about England or the States or the third world or whatever. The global economy. On the one hand, we've never had it so good. And every two, three months, there is yet another book telling us we've never had it so good. Uh, we, if you compare today with, say, 1950, and I'll explain to you in a minute why 1950 is a, a momentous it's anchor, anchor, time to, to anchor oneself. Um, the uh, life expectancy was about 45. Today it's about 70, the global average. Everything I say now is global average. Today I'm not taking a micro story at all. I want to look at the world as a whole. Per capita income then was about 3,000 international dollars at 2015 prices. So the prices are good based on 2015. Today it's 15,000. Uh, world population at that time was uh, 2.5 billion, today it's 7.4 billion. Um, even as late as 1990, 
something like 40% of the world's population were below the World Bank's poverty line. Today, it's less than 10%. So pretty much all these global statistics look extremely good. And certainly, if you're intelligent enough and God asks you, I'll drop you into the earth, onto earth, you choose the, you, randomly, but you choose the time. My guess is you would say now. You wouldn't wish to be born in 1600, 1200 AD, or wherever, because the chance would be you would be toiling most of your life. So that's the good news. It's a, and it's a good news that we celebrate, justifiably. I'm now ignoring distributional issues. I'm really looking at averages globally. That's, that's the uh, deal for this evening. Okay? On the other hand, um, we, we're now living through what environmentalist, uh, environmental scientists call the Anthropocene, and there's a reason for it, and I'm coming to it in a minute. The turn of the century, the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment studied, put together the studies, of 24 biomes, global, uh, global ecosystems, and found 15 of them either degraded or beyond repair, or heading towards beyond repair. Uh, last year in science, the journal Science, a really remarkable paper was published by a group of, uh, international group of earth scientists who looked at 11, looked at time series of 11 biogeochemical signatures, mainly in ice cores and in rocks and in soil, to find that pretty much all of them have the most familiar uh, hockey stick shape curve that you're, you're familiar with in the context of carbon concentration. Uh, you're familiar, uh, carbon was of course one of the signatures that they looked at, but they looked at many others, phosphorus for example, nitrogen, and so forth. And the, in other words, the, the, uh, over the long haul, the curve was pretty much flat, the deposits that is, but took a rather sharp turn sometime about the middle of the last century, hence 1950. Uh, and had very much the case, the, the, the setup of carbon. Now, of course, things had been growing before that. There was a momentum. We are aware of that. And we usually talk about the Industrial Revolution as being a turning point. But now we are looking at signatures which take time to establish themselves. Okay, these are feedback processes. So even although the driver started earlier, the signatures would be later. And the about mid, mid 20th century was that time. So much so that within months, uh, the international group of geophysicists, many of whom are heads of the geo, uh, geological surveys of their countries, including ours here, uh, signed a paper suggesting that the Anthropocene should be seen as having been born in, entered into in 1950. That's just a, that's just a focal point not to be taken seriously. The whole idea is that it's really rather recent, that dramatic changes have taken place. There is one very large network of environmental scientists, the Global Footprint Network. Uh, the, the 
the quantitative estimates are not the, of the greatest importance in a field which is lacking in funding. What's important is that they got the model right. They asked themselves to, they suggested that we look at the biosphere, the entire <coughs> biosphere, as a gigantic renewable natural resource. And if you want to focus on a micro example of it, think of a garden pond. That too is a renewable natural resource. Mess around with it too much and it will flip to a state which doesn't harbor the kinds of uh, biota that you'd like it to have. Um, and then they ask the following question. What is the demand that humanity makes of it and what is its capacity to supply? Okay? And I'll come back to their estimates later. But for the moment, you should know that they were suggesting that the ratio of demand to supply exceeds one and considerably greater than one now, but up until the mid-60s to early 70s, it was a bit under one. So these are pointers that perhaps there is a puzzle here, which is that we at the same time are living at the best of times and potentially at the worst of times. And maybe our great successes, some of which have to do with advances in technology, of course, but many other things besides, which we economists have studied at great length, and so as have others, but that maybe that this success is built on the diminution of the natural environment, namely the biosphere. It's that puzzle that needs reconciling, which is the following. And the reconciliation, the, the question that is being asked here is the following. If we are so smart, how come we are borrowing from the future at such a rapid rate? And if we are, what are we doing to our children? So we are really talking about intergenerational distribution here, and the question is if we are smart, and that's a reasonable assumption to make. We could always explain anything by saying we're stupid. But if you're smart, reasonably far-sighted, and I have seen no private reason for believing that we are not far-sighted because we care about our children. And if we care about our children, if we're reasonably reasonable, uh, we know that they will care about their children. And if you care about your children, then you care about your grandchildren by recursion. And you care about your great-grandchildren, again by recursion, because you know your, great -gra your grandchildren will care about their children, and so on. Now, no doubt there's myopia and so forth and so on, but the presumption that we don't care about our children, we don't care about the next generation, doesn't ring true to me. Uh, we do care about them. However, there's a problem. That's where I'm going to enter my economics hat, put my economics hat on. I care about my children, you care about your children, but it may be that you don't care about my children and I don't care about your children. <laughs> now, a good economist will immediately come up with a good price system, saying, well, prices will fix this. But if prices are missing, some key prices are missing, then the fact that I don't care about your children and you don't care about my children might be a cause of some distortion. The question is, is this, that distortion large or is it small? What are the consequences? Now, what I want to do is to build on this idea that there is a mismatch arising out of the fact that the signals that we, each of us, receives in the within the institutions that we happen to inhabit are not sufficient to 
allow our private concerns about the next generation and the generation that follows to be aggregated in a way which makes the intergenerational distribution at the global level uh, reasonable. That would be the sense in which the, the puzzle can be addressed because at the same time, they were doing very well, but there is a distortion arising out of the missing signals which lead us to over-consume at one level, perhaps will produce. Now, I want to be very simple here. Nuances are not for this occasion, but I want to argue at the end of the day when I look at some data and give you some theory to begin with, otherwise just data without theory is no data, or are no data. Um, that a sharp way of thinking about it will be uh, to distinguish between those who can, that they, there is a tension between consumption and reproduction. And I want to start with that thought. In a very famous paper of 1971, I think, Paul Ehrlich and John Holbrun um, published in Science a paper in which they introduced an equation which is completely meaningless, bogus, and yet it's probably the most prof very, very profound, and I'll try and explain why. The equation is I pat, I equals pat, which is I is impact on the biosphere, our impact, humanity's impact. Pat is, P is population, A is affluence, I guess, for which read consumption, if you like, material stuff that we okay. And T is technology, and they multiply P with A with T, no concern about dimensions, no concern about if it's a meaningful statement or not, but the reason I can smile at it is because I think it's a very serious piece of work. What they did was to argue that we should be looking at the impact we have on the environment, that is humanity, large, writ large, and that nature responds to the demand we make of it. It doesn't respond to the rate of change in the demand we make of it, and it does not respond to the rate of change of the rate of change of demand we make of it. Now, you might think I'm being facetious here, talking about rates of change, but ask yourself how often you've read in the newspapers, oh, things are getting better, you know, the fertility rates are declining everywhere we look. Well, that's the first derivative. That's the point I'm trying to make. Or that our demand for uh, our emissions, the rate of growth of emissions is declining. That's a second derivative of emissions. But of course, what the atmosphere is concerned with is the amount of the flow of emissions, not the change. So it is a significant insight. It was done in 1971, and I picked that up because, in a sense, it has influenced me in thinking about uh, the problems that I'm discussing with you now. So we have this distortion. We want to ask why this impact is straining the biosphere to the, to the, to the, to the, to the without that the stock of the biosphere is being degraded, both quantitatively and qualitatively. I won't worry about the nature of the degradation. Uh, some people would talk about uh, depreciation, some degradation, some uh, reduction in quantity, and that will depend on the nature of the resource. But for my purposes here, I'm aggregating, thinking of the biosphere as a gigantic renewable natural resource, 
And if you want to have units, think of it as biomass. Each year it's churning out biomass, and each year we're converting the biomass, we're consuming the biomass and transforming it for our purposes. And the question really is, is there a balance of supply and demand in this, in, in this dynamic system? Now, I began by saying that there, there is a mismatch. Now, how am I, what do I do to... There was something here which I could have used to... Since they've disappeared, is there... Oh. This, the, what follows is based on a paper I've just published last month with my uh, younger daughter, Aisha. And uh, so those of you who want to look at the details of what I will be talking about, that's where it is, population development. <coughs> the, so what I've been really concerned with here, the, the mismatch that I've talked about, the tension, is the fact that certain important signals are missing. We call them uh, institutional failure, if you like. And, of course, you, are, you can see that what I've been trying to get at is the presence of externalities. So I'm going to define externalities very simply. <coughs> We're thinking about the unaccounted for consequences for others, including future people, of actions taken by one or more persons. Externalities are symptoms of institutional failure, which is why they cannot be eliminated without collective action. So you can now see where I'm heading, and I'm actually, in some sense, belaboring the obvious, but there are quite a number of young people here who may not, may not be economists, so I want to carry, carry the argument with you. Um, so when I talked about parental concerns about children, but not necessarily across dynasties, that's what I mean. Externalities are picking that up. Okay. Um, now, why are there institutional failures? And why are there externalities? And one way of thinking about it would be to say there are the absence of appropriate property rights to goods and services. And the property rights could not be private. It could be communitarian. Communities fail as well. They could be public. Governments fail as well, not just markets. I want to think, and households fail. So uh, we want to think about those ideas. But when externalities are adverse, the moral directives flowing from them can clash with the exercise of personal rights. And that's something I'll come to in a few minutes. Okay? But that's just it. Now, the question is, why are there the, these, uh, these externalities? Why are, these why are the property rights missing? The environmental one is pretty straightforward, very profound, but very straightforward, because we have actually been studying it for quite a while, economists, that is. And one reason is to cut to the chase, nature is always on the move. And you don't have a static. A bird which is in a cage is a different bird from one which can fly because the latter can uh, pollinate, uh, disperse seeds, the, form, the former can't. Uh, likewise, insect, insects fly, rivers flow, fish swim, and so of course property rights are very hard to establish. Uh, monitoring is a difficult problem. So that's the easy bit. Those of you who are interested in game theory will recognize the externalities that are arise out of these are like the prisoner's dilemma game. Reproductive, uh, I want to talk about the other side of things. Remember the iPad? Holding T constant, that is the institution <coughs> said technology constant at the moment, iPad equation is directing attention to per capita, the, the affluence of the average person multiplied by population. Okay? 
So now on the consumption side, I'm thinking of the environmental externalities I've just now mentioned. Okay? If there is a free good out there, you're going to not economize on its use. Entrepreneurs are not going to economize on their use either. So you can even see that the direction of technological change we have been witnessing over 250 years is really rapacious in the use of nature for a very good reason. Why would an entrepreneur develop uh, technologies without any directives, in the absence of any directives, in economizing on what's free? They would economize on labor if it's becoming more expensive, capital if it's more expensive, and so forth. So the idea that technology will be there to help us inevitably is, I believe, profoundly misleading because the direction of technological change is guided by the incentives that entrepreneurs have to making one invention rather than another. And if the signals they receive are wrong, and I'm giving you now reasons to why they are wrong, there will be a bias in the direction of technology. This is not to say you can't be smart, but it is to say that we'll be smart in the wrong way if the signals are wrong. And I think one perhaps negative feature of our particular interest in climate change as, an, as, a, as a symptom of the environmental problem, the externalities that I've just now mentioned, of course, global climate change is a paradigm of this, one weakness in our excessive attention to it is that we believe, it makes us think that these problems have a natural technological solution, whether it's... Uh, finding alternative technology, clean energy, and so forth. Whereas many of the uh, problems that we face, in particular um, um, uh, species extinction, uh, are not going to be helped by technological change per se, It'll have, because the causes of it has to do with <coughs> habitat destruction. So the breakdown of iPad into affluence and population suggests that I have to look at, on the one hand, on the consumption side <coughs> of the model, but on the other hand, also the population side of it, which is what brings me to the mismatch when it comes to reproduction. Reproductive externalities, and one of the things that Aisha and I did in our paper was to put a lot of emphasis on sub-Saharan Africa, because there it's a real outlier in terms of regional uh, fertility rates. Uh, the total fertility rate in sub-Saharan Africa is even today approximately five. This is total fertility rate, as you know, is the number of children a, 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 a woman going through her entire reproductive phase ex expects to have, uh, surviving ones, by the way. So it doesn't include uh, premature death, I mean, uh, fetal, fetal death. Um, so that's five in sub-Saharan Africa. The global average is now about 2.5, 2.6. Even Bangladesh has pushed it down to about just over, I think just over, but I may be wrong, I may be back behind, over 2.1, which is the long-term replacement rate. So we spent some time looking at the anthropological literature to see what are the drivers for the high fertility uh, that takes, that, that's, been, uh, that's being experienced in sub-Saharan Africa, and I'll come back to it. I'll round all this up. I'm giving you now, sort of going to the basis, so to speak, at the end, I'll put them together. One is cost-sharing among the country. Um, in sub-Saharan Africa, in parts of them, particularly in the central region, um, some 50 to 60% of the children have been found to not be living in their natal 
homes, but with others. Now, this is not adoption. It's uh, something that's not exactly unfamiliar in my part of India, which is, gosh, I can't really look after my fourth child, uh, says X to his brother. You take him. And it's not even a loan. And the brother can't say, no, I'm not going to take you. It happens. It's just fine. And it's, uh, it's, it's nothing... It's rather sweet in some sense. And you might say that there is a kind of kinship-ness in it which is missing in this, uh, this egotistical West. But of course, it, comes with, it does come with some cost, which is that, uh, that there's a free rider problem here. And so you, the private cost of having a child is less than the social cost because somebody proportionately is. So reciprocity, which is a wonderful thing, can come with some costs, unless you're careful. Children and status quo. This was pointed out to me by several anthropologists, particularly at the reference stage of this paper. And that's a very powerful thing I hadn't really come across, which is you take pride. I have five sons. The status good, the moment they use the word status good, reminds me, of course, of Veblen. Uh, Veblen's account of consumption in the Gilded Age, which is to spend a lot of money to show you're better than your neighbor. Uh, that's like another PDK. The third, 2C, is the one which really interests me and because it gives us some hope, some direct hope for population policies, which is that our preferences are also socially embedded. We are conformists as well as competitors. And here the desired number of children, in other words, the idea here is that how many children I have is not uninfluenced by how many children my neighbors have. And there is now a lovely set of empirical work testifying to this conformist-ness in us in the fertility field. We know of it in consumption. There are tons of material on consumption uh, and clothing. You just have to look around your neighbors and you can see how conformist we all are. I'm not wearing a dhoti, I'm wearing trousers. Why? I happen to be here. We look odd, quite apart from the fact it's damn cold. <laughs> but you see what I mean. Uh, it's, look around you and you'll see how our, our neighbors influence, our peer group influences us. And of course, we influence them too, so it's a mutual interaction. And so the idea here is, I'm going to go back, I'm going to go up now to the first of our graphs. So suppose you ask, and this, this is not a hypothetical thing, this is what the UN does all the time, the family planning programs are asking women in the reproductive age at the time, um, what is their desired number of children? It's a, the questionnaires are extremely sophisticated. It drives the entire UN, uh, uh, UN uh, view on family planning. Um, now, in this diagram, which I hope you can see on the horizontal axis, I've plotted TFR, that is to say the societies, the, the peer group, who are the society in question. Now I'll talk about what I mean by society in a minute, but for the moment just imagine it's a village. So it's the average number of uh, children per family in the village, and the vertical axis is the desired number of children for a representative member of the family. And of course I'm assuming here people are pretty much the same. Now the fact that it's an increasing function curve is increasing means that there is conformity. That is to say, you are, you are being influenced. Your choice or your desire is influenced by uh, the average around. 
But the fact that it's cu cutting the 45 degree line OF, that's 45 degree line, in this case, in three points, means that you can get locked into several, one of several <coughs> equilibrium. An equilibrium will be one where the desire actually turn of the representative person is also the average. And since everybody is representative, if you're intersecting at the 45 degree line, then the desire is fulfilled. You're feeling comfortable about the number you have. You have five because everybody else has five. And each of the others are saying, yes, that's five is the right number. That's my desire. Uh, and it's a comfortable situation because everybody else has five. So the intersections are three in number. Uh, those of you who know something about these social dynamics will know that the middle one is unstable, but the outer ones are stable. That is, B is stable and D is stable. Now, imagine that you're locked into D. Nobody has a unilateral incentive to deviate from what he or she or that household is doing because it's an equilibrium in the sense it's the best response to the fact that everybody else is at D. Uh, but of course, it could be that they will all be better off at B. But they won't, nobody will have an incentive to do that. So one of the things that family planning programs now are beginning to lay stress on, and rightly so too, is actually group discussions. It's not a question of just setting up clinics and saying, well, come if you wish to have contraceptives and so forth. It's not that. It's more, more collective engagement in the pros and cons of having children at bearing children at a particular age, and given the economic circumstance, spacing, and so forth. In other words, there is collective discussion. And I like to think that both Mauritius and Bangladesh have picked on that and made the success of their family planning programs. We're not talking about coercion. We're really talking about social engagement over a matter in which there are externalities and therefore calls for social engagement. Okay. So, where am I? So, the last one, the conformist one, which I'm going to spend some time on, I mean, I have been spending some time on, because it seems to me to be, give us a hope for, for, for the future, has one implication, which is multiplicity of equilibrium. I've just gone through it. Now, let me give you a... Um, I said I'd say something about what I mean by society, because one has to be very open-minded about thinking. And one uh, advantage of being an economist, particularly if you're a mathematical economist, is you lift yourself from specific instances. So what do I, what do I mean by society? Now, there's been a very, very interesting uh, paper published some years ago, what, nine years ago, in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, which went somewhere like this. The national government parliament in India uh, sanctioned the introduction of cable TV into the country. Okay? This was sometime in the 60s, I guess, or 70s, I guess, or some such time. I can't remember the exact time, but it'll be the decade, it'll be about seven, late 70s probably. But, of course, being a federal nation, uh, the states adopted it subsequently. But they didn't adopt it at the same time, the state parliaments, that is. <coughs> they staggered it. Now, that staggering had nothing to do with fertility, right? It was a question of, you know, nationalism. We want soap operas here, I mean, in our country, which is sort of, you know, drum, it's the country of the Mahabharata and so forth, in infiltration of foreign influences. No doubt that kind of discussion went on, but it was staggered. Now, this paper tracked fertility across the states, the 20 of them, 20, 
22, 23 of them, I guess, and found that fertility rate dropped after the introduction of cable TV and then flattened after a while. But of course, the, you could see now you have a staggered decline in fertility rates across the states. This is just one example. It's a very good one because it's a, it's a natural experiment. There's no, nothing, uh, uh, nothing funny about the method because the, the introduction of cable TV in the states was not guided by any, by any motivation for fertility. But the fact is uh, that one thought here is that you're open to your entire peer group might change through exposure. So when I say society, it could be the village, it could be your mother-in-law, for all you know, who insists on your bearing the eighth child because uh, if you're having a woman. But it could be the state, it could be, it could be the world at large. But there are many other examples of this suggesting this uh, multiplicity is important. Now, central plank of family planning programs is the idea of unmet need for modern contraceptives, which the UN derives from expressed desire for children, which is the percentage of women in age range 15 to 49 who are seeking to stop or delay childbearing but who are not currently using modern birth control methods. Problem is that the expressed number of children, expressed desire for children, is shot through with problems. Particularly if you see you think conformist behavior is a potent force. Um, wanted fertility rate, which is related to the desired family size, is inferred from answers to the following question, and I, this is a quote from the UN program. If you go back to the time when you did not have any children and could choose exactly the number of children to have in your whole life, how many would that be? Notice the question has not, says nothing about what others are doing. So if you take the conformist bit that I mentioned now a few minutes ago seriously, you would rephrase the question as follows. If you could go back to the time when you did not have any children and could choose exactly the number of children to have in your whole life, how many would that be, assuming everyone else in your community had n children over their whole life? And then, of course, you move n from 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, and so forth and see what the answer will be. Now, this might be a tricky uh, thing to answer, but the fact is, it's tricky. Even the first question is hard to answer. In any event, that's what you need to do. Uh, so this has some potent uh, policy implications. It has some intellectual consequences, too. Economic democracy have regressed uh, the total fertility rate on wanted fertility and found that 80 to 90 percent of cross-country differences in TFR are associated with differences in wanted fertility. That might suggest, see, if you hadn't listened to the first, the, the previous few minutes, you might say, well, that shows people get what they want. So what's wrong with that? The trouble is that might suggest that high fertility is due entirely to strong desire for children. But to see, that is to say, the conformist point that I made, says that it is as true to say that TFR is high because the desire for many children is high as it is to say that the desire is high because the TFR is high. There's no causality here. The two are. So there are advantages of looking at these problems in uh, uh, analytically. But the, where it really hits you, or it hit me hard, being a liberal 
believer in human rights and so forth, which all of you do, we have a clash of rights here. These externalities that I started with over the environment, which take time and therefore in some sense the cost that's imposed by our free access to biospheric goods and services, means that payment may be made in the future by people who are maybe not even born yet. Now, if you insist on women's reproductive rights, that is to say the entire uh, UN family planning projects are based on the idea of rights, and and, and the immediate question is, why not? We have a clash of rights, because if if these rights are being exercised in the face of environmental and reproductive externalities, why then these rights are clashing with other rights. It's a fact. I mean, we know that rights often clash. You can't smoke in my presence because the law says so, but then that's a cost to you because you like to smoke. So we know that there are clashes, and usually we reconcile these clashes by giving priority to one set of rights over others. Here, it's kind of issue that hasn't actually been discussed in the literature at all, so we don't even know how people feel about the clash of rights, particularly over, over the damages that, um, that the excessive de- demand on the uh, biosphere affects the future. So, um, I now come to the last five, ten minutes to give you a sense of how many people can the biosphere support. I chose this topic uh, in, 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 in supporting comfort, please. Uh, I chose the title only to make it look weird, I guess. But there is a serious intent here. Um, and in a way, I have, to, I have to explain to my wife why I work on this kind of crazy kind of problem, because most of my colleagues don't. In fact, no colleague of mine does, works on demographic issues. But ask yourself, macroeconomists are constantly regressing one thing with another, and trying to see what are the sources of economic growth. And they're looking at the output is GDP, or total production. And that's the connection I want to make with the question that I'm asking. As a first approximation, we might want to use our total income, or global output, as a surrogate for the demand we make on biosphere, on the biosphere. So that's approximation number one. There will be so many approximations that you'll be cringing by the end of my answer. But I don't apologize. Because nobody else is doing it. And if you think of... Let me, let me prime you with the following. If somebody asks you what the per capita GDP is in the United States, and, you, and the answer is from your colleague, says, oh yes, I know what it is. It's 40,700 40, international dollars per year. And you say, how do you know? Well, he said, well, no, the World Bank has published that. And so that makes a fact. We believe it, and we believe it and not unreasonably. Thousands and thousands of man-hours, person-hours, have been spent in collecting data from all over the world, been refined for 70 years. This entire enterprise is now 70 years, at least 70 years old, of refining <coughs> GDP estimates. What I'm doing here has not been done at all. So we're, I have no uh, embarrassment in giving you completely weird uh, Approximations, but I'm going to do it because somebody has to start doing it. And if it's one has to, the onus is on you, somebody else to tell me why I'm completely wrong. Okay. So my first approximation is I'm going to use total output as at least 
say that the first approximation proportional to the impact. You might then say, oh no, that can't be right, because the poor have a different impact than the rich. Now you're doing an act, so I could say, well, they could disaggregate. Fair enough, that's a good way of going about it. But then you say, no, but you're not disaggregating, so you can't get away with it. So then I'll say, all right, let's assume that it's an increasing function, but maybe a strictly concave function. Or maybe it's a convex function, I don't know. Either way, I'll have the tools. For this afternoon, I'm going to be using a linear one. Okay? Uh, and then if you want to have a discussion, what happens if it's non-linear, we can have a chat. And then I'll point to some more cruel dilemmas society would face if it's non-linear. All right. Today, annual global output is about 110 trillion international dollars. Uh, this is PPP. Okay, so this is the more sophisticated version of national income. Global ecological footprint, the ratio of the global demand for ecological goods and services to the biosphere's capability to supply them, <coughs> I referred to it some time ago, is what, approximately 1.6. Now, that's the second approximation. That is, boy, this, this is, don't take this number as a, it's a, literally a ballpark figure. We know it's greater than one because otherwise it doesn't gel with all the other evidence that I sketched before. If nothing else, climate change. Because remember, that's part of my ecological footprint. The capacity of the atmosphere, the biosphere, to absorb the uh, carbon we're uh, emitting. So in everything I do say here, and have been saying here, think of pollution as the negative of conservation. Then you can bring the whole lot together as one, one package. Because in, in, uh, in polluting the atmosphere, you are, in a sense, uh, not conserve, conserving the absorptive capacity of the resource, which is giving the service of absorbing the stuff and then cleaning it up and recycling it and so forth. Okay? So it's 1.6. It's greater than 1. That seems now to be incontrovertible. And the first, the hockey stick paper I talked about earlier suggests that the fact that it's greater than 1 is a reasonably recent phenomenon. Okay? It's Again, it's trying to match different kinds of evidence that we have. So, third approximation. If sustainable global output at current compositions of output is as a crude, uh, so is as a crude approximation, uh, one, one, 110 trillion divided by 1.6, that's 70 trillion dollars, international dollars. Uh, and we'll come to institutional changes and so forth. This is a I'm freezing the world at the moment, and then seeing. Okay. Now, uh, our, my old colleague Richard Layard, Lord Layard, who uh, wrote a paper called Unhappiness some years ago, a very fine book, uh, suggested, and this is again to ask how many people can, can Earth support in comfort. I need a notion of comfort. I need a benchmark. Now there are two ways of going about it. I'll do the the one I'm doing here today, only because the other route would uh, take a long time to ex explain, but more, more importantly, it would convey the kind of urgency of the matter as this one does, which is, if you're an LSE PhD student or an undergraduate in economics even, you would say, well, why not optimize? Optimize over the world with choosing the number of people as well as standard of living and solve the entire optimization problem in one go and you will get the 
the right standard of living, averaging them. I'm avoiding that here. I have another paper where I've done that too, but this one, I'm going to take it reasonable standard of living, and if Lord Laird suggests it, who are we to question it? He suggested that $20,000 uh, is a reasonable one, and here's why. Found in particular one set of, uh, of uh, data set. These were based on questionnaires. These are happiness questionnaires. And uh, the life satisfaction questionnaires. So one set of global surveys on happiness and their relationship with household income, that in countries where per capita income is in excess of $20,000, additional income is not statistically related to greater reported happiness. I'm going to work with this without any questioning yet, okay? Because I need some number. And it, because otherwise, you can't even answer the question. And the right thing would be, to, of course, to take a whole sequence of notions of what constitutes uh, reasonable comfort and then work out the corresponding population. You can do that. That's sensitivity analysis. But here, I don't want to do that. I just want to give you an example. So we work with that 20,000 international dollars at 2015 prices. And one reason I don't think it's an absurd way to think about it is that it was the per capita income in OECD countries in the mid-1970s. And it was the final years of the golden age of capitalism. And you might want to ask those of you who are young, you could ask your parents, were you a lot happier or unhappier then than you are now? Uh, it was, I remember the period reasonably well. I can't say what the answer is, but that's the kind of question you need, one needs to ask to see the reasonableness of these figures. But anyway, my point is not to sell you the number, it's to see what the implications are. And if we regard 20,000 US uh, international dollars as the desired standard of living for the average person, remember, Per capita income today is 15,000, so we are looking at a higher level here. Maximum sustainable rate comes to 3.5 billion, because you divide uh, uh, 70, billion, uh, 70 trillion uh, international dollars by this average to get the number. That was global population in the early 1970s, so we're not talking of unfamiliar figures. Uh, it was 2.5 billion in 1950, so the if you, if you telescope your history into the 65 or now 67 year period, you see a momentous change. You use 50 as your starting point and end up in 19, 2017. You see a momentous change in the, the success we've had and simultaneously the burden that we imposed on the bad Now, I began. Uh, warned you that what I want to do is to decompose the world into two groups, just to, just to give us a sense of where we might think of hitting uh, in, in terms of policy. One is rich versus poor, high consumption and high fertility. Remember, it's, it's just 20,000, just for the sake of argument, that's my benchmark. The US, the OECD countries are well in the high 30s, 30,000, high 30,000. The US is as I said, 40.7 uh, 40,000 40. international dollars per capita. Um, the poorest countries are, in sub-Saharan Africa, it's, I think it's just over 3,000 international dollars at the moment, per capita income in sub-Saharan Africa. Now, imagine that the 1.4 billion people in today's high-income countries were to reduce their average consumption from the current $40,700 to... Sorry, the $40,700 was uh, rich countries not the U.S., the U.S. has been higher, to 280,000. That's a drop of 
20,700 per person. And that brings the, uh, and if it's over 1.4 billion people, that adds up to a saving of 31 trillion international dollars. So world income then would be 79 trillion dollars, which is just above the 70 billion that I, we estimated as a sustainable um, income level or output or economic activity under current institutions and technologies. Now, I'm going to give you the final. This is the, from the United Nations. It gives you the projection of world population from 2015 to 2095. World population is projected now, it's of course 7.4 billion. It's expected to, the projection is, uh, is going to be uh, 11.2 billion at the end of the century. The, of the approximately 4 billion increase during this period, 3 billion will be in sub-Saharan Africa. So when I was giving you the TFR and the reasons I was looking at sub-Saharan Africa, it wasn't just for the hell of it. It's because the future burden of demographic increase are going to be built there. Currently, population in sub-Saharan Africa is just under a billion. So we're looking at a three billion increase from one to four. Per capita income there is about 3,000 international dollars. Sustainable development goals, of course, rightly have a target for sub-Saharan Africa well in excess. Now you can see, suppose just for the sake of argument, we feel that by the end of the century it should hit today's per capita world income, that's 15. So that's an increase of about a five-fold increase with a four-fold increase in population. And you can imagine the pressure on their ecology. It's a problem that they will be facing. That's the most important. That's the first thing. The second thing is, at the moment, Sub-Saharan Africa is only 13% of the global GDP. So they cannot be remotely blamed for the problems that we've been discussing here the environmental problems. They're tiny. They have uh, lots of ecological problems within the, 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 the region, those sorts of things. That's for sure. Uh, the local environment is in a bad way. That's a different matter. They certainly are, cannot be held responsible for carbon concentration and so forth because they're tiny. So it's the high consumption at this end of the world and high fertility at that end of the world which looks to be ominous for the next 60 years or so. That's 60, 70, 80 years or so. That seems to be what this, uh, the data are telling us. And what I've tried to do in this, uh, in this uh, lecture is to give you an analytical basis for thinking about the fact that we are both at the best of times and at the worst of times. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Partha. I'm always fascinated by people who can express something unbelievably complicated with a few numbers. So that's, that's really, really impressive. We have, uh, we have time for uh, quite a few questions, and I'm sure there will be, there will be many. You know the rules. Um, wait until you have a microphone. Introduce yourself. Go back there. And as you wish. And then a question is a statement that takes less than a minute or even half a minute to express. Okay, who, uh, who wants to go? 
first. Let's start on, on, on the left here. And maybe we collect those two together. Go ahead. Hi, hi Jim Clark. Um, thanks for your talk. Uh, you mentioned that we are t over twice what you would say is a good level for the population to be. Is there any liberal way to slow or even reverse population growth? Okay, let's just move down the, the bench a little bit. I think I'll take that question immediately because that's a very important Okay, let's, let's do one at a time. Just this once, anyway. It's a very important one because it's the moment you say population, you mean population control, and then then you lose lose the thread of what's going on here. Um, I think there are some. Um, it's easy to say that I know how to do it. I don't. Absolutely no clue. But the the conformist is, is suggesting something very liberal, and it's been tried and it's been successful in some countries, which is collective discussion. It's, it's in a sense giving that the rights to women. So you see, one of the problems in the UN thing, which I didn't really go into in our paper with Aisha has, goes into it in some detail, is that you are at the same time looking to unearth women's reproductive needs. And you're trying to find that or unearth that through their expressed desires. Now, the gap between a desire and a need is huge in a world in which there is huge gender inequalities. Uh, and I mean, belabor the point, it's pretty obvious. Just asking a woman uh, what your desired number of family size is is not going to give you much sense of it. And particularly if you think that family planning programs are to, there to help with attaining the desires, then if you're in Niger and your answer is nine, and they're currently at seven, which is the case, presumably the UN should be helping them to have two more. And that doesn't seem right, feel right. And the reason it doesn't feel right is the answer, a desire is very different from need, and it's need that we should be concerned with. And if you've got a huge gender inequality issues all over the world, but in particular in poor countries. So I think the conformist side is pretty straight, it's, it's very, very important, and until we make use of it. And it's a very liberal agenda because you're essentially trying to get people to talk to each other. I think we'll, and then we're there to help. If you, like the Grameen Bank was one of those where uh, the conversations were very helpful in getting women to at least enter the marketplace of savings and investment. Comes to the, the, my allusion to the rich, I think, and the, in the case of uh, over overconsumption, I think there's no question we should be thinking in taxation of the resources that are being used. So when people talk about carbon tax, that's exactly what they're talking about. But it goes all over the world. I mean, that's to say, the leakage in, in terms of externalities is just enormous, and the fact that it hasn't been really studied is a, is there is a negative feature of our mind discipline. Externalities, even now, barring climate change, is seen as an ex exception. You prove that there's an externality before I think that there is a case for a public collective action. That's the wrong way around, I would now say. You prove to me that there aren't any, and why we shouldn't be thinking about what might be the sources of the externalities. And these are adverse externalities, the environmental ones. Trashing the uh, Amazon, Crashing the oceans because they're cheap. 
And here the um, technological change is very interesting and important. The biases I mentioned, that they're rapacious, is proven by the fact that we have chainsaws, which are extremely good things because they save on energy, human energy. So a person can cut, you know, a group can cut through forests at a faster pace than they could 200 years ago, transformed uh, logging, right? But of course, it has simultaneously created another problem, the, deep, the fact that the uh, ecosystem protection that forests provide is not being counted. And nobody was interested in counting it when devising these. Uh, likewise with fisheries, with the, uh, the ways you can now track schools of fish and then just wipe out entire uh, schools plus the ecosystem in which they are harbored. Those are the unintended effects of a technology. So the technological solution to these problems certainly to be, to be remote. It has to be, in my judgment, for these problems, it has to be institutional. In this case, n- n- naturally, taxation would be the right thing over consumption. I would not think of taxation of families because the burden is amongst the poor, and there you want to help them to reach a, a collective decision which would be lower than they, they currently are. It's not going to happen in the West over consumption because there are enlightened people say, well, I'm going to not, not going to use plastic, I'm going to now become a vegan, and so forth. But we're looking at municipal population proportions. That's not, it's not a movement of it. It needs some state directive, international directives in this case, because these are global, uh, global uh, uh, resources. So again, you have the uh, prisoner dilemma problem at the national level. Okay, that's the best I can do. Okay, let's, uh, next question. Hi, yeah, thanks for the talk. Um, is it, it's an interesting coincidence, is it not, that the rise of the machines of artificial intelligence suddenly coincides with the fact that there maybe are too many humans. Uh, and, and interesting, again, that it's kind of framed in a kind of moral way, that you have to, that somehow you're, you're morally culpable for your footprint, when the issue might be more to do with... Um, how machines are having an effect on our lives rather than necessarily what humans, just what humans are doing. I'm sorry, I think I've lost the... So so it's an interesting coincidence that the rise of machines, the fact that there are more machines, uh, more artificial intelligence, more computers, uh, more machines doing things that humans used to do, it's an interesting coincidence that that coincides uh, somehow with the fact that suddenly we're realising that there might be too many humans and that we might be consuming too much. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I wouldn't uh, know how to think about it. I haven't, I haven't uh, appreciated it. Um, notice I've been avoiding two sets of expressions. I haven't d- at all thought, talked of morality here. It's self-interest or collective interest is what I've been harping. And the other is, uh, I guess, the, the, uh, the direction in which our activities are, um, the, the direction in which technological change occurs, other than the fact that there are going to be labor-saving, um, as opposed to uh, economizing on nature. That's right. Yeah. Okay. There's a question here right in the middle. Uh, and David Flint, uh, the, the Green Party. 
I'm glad you mentioned carbon tax because I've been working on carbon tax. If carbon tax is imposed to cover the externalities, should the revenue from the carbon tax be used to compensate people for the damage that the externalities express or to stop that damage occurring? Or should it be used for some other purpose? Sorry, you, you, you want to move the target from carbon to what? If, if, if carbon tax is, yeah. is set and other resource taxes are set in terms of the externalities that the resource consumption, you know, like air pollution, damage right, and right, climate change, right, right. then the revenue raised from that tax, should it be used to, to prevent or compensate those particular harms? Very nice question. Yes, of course. The, uh, yeah, there, you know, back in the 70s, there was a small literature suggesting that these uh, um, taxes from these global commons could be used for redistribution purposes from the rich to the poor countries. That was a, quite a, was a large literature. Um, I think in the mid-70s, uh, development economists felt, you know, you could, they even tried to estimate, just as I'm doing here, crude numbers about the revenue that the, the international bodies could collect. On, at that time, it wasn't carbon. It was manganese nodules in the bottom of the ocean seabed. And there was a movement to try and... Uh, to, 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 to mine them. Uh, it hasn't really worked. The technology apparently is very difficult, uh, largely because it's probably not economic. There are other things, better things for entrepreneurs to do. But the answer is yes, of course. Uh, typically, you would do that. You would, you would wish to compensate. But the compensation is not actually necessary because the fact is if, if you've imposed the tax, then the damage won't occur. That's the whole idea, right? because you've taken that damage into account. So you want to use it for many other things besides. There are plenty of other things to do with money. I mean, I have no idea what a global environmental tax would even look like in terms of the revenue. I don't think anybody has tried to do that. Carbon, they have, of course. Um, but I, there may be studies there which I haven't seen. Okay, where shall we go next? Uh, we haven't... Let's go over there. It's just an observation. I only see male hands, so the ladies perhaps should think of a question. Hi, uh, my name is Lutz. I'm a PhD student here. Thanks for the talk. So my question is about what's desirable and what's feasible. So I was wondering if you have a stance on uh, population ethics in the sense of is it more desirable to have a population of 3.5 billion people with $20,000 of living standard or rather 14 billion with 5,000 and then also what's feasible to achieve because I feel like we have a fairly good idea what policies can lead to lower fertility rates in Africa at, at some point. Do you have an idea how we can get the Europeans or the Americans to consume less as well? <laughs> no, I, that's a bit unfair. <laughs> I really am not a policy expert at all. Um, as a first cut, I have essentially avoided distributional matters here. And, uh, because it's, it's not clear to me how, I mean, it's just, the analysis is, the quantitative analysis is so crude that it's hard to know whether it makes any sense to decompose it. There are enough problems within it anyway. That's to say, what the direction which is mentioning. I can't help thinking there is the, the uh, look, this, these are collective endeavors. 
you, if you're studying a village, if you're an anthropologist, to study a village or a cluster of villages, then the policies that strike you would be to get collective decision made or collective discussion going within the community. And that's where the anthropologists are so rich in their, in their writings. When it comes to nations, the units now are nations. You really are, we are, I mean, look at, it's taken dozens of years to get to Paris, and that's only with one distortion, as it were. Uh, over the oceans, it will be another 50 years before the oceans get a look in. Meanwhile, we're trashing that. In very many ways, it's, its absorptive capacity for heat is, is now weakened enormously. Plus, on top of that, we're dumping material in it. We're removing uh, bottom layers of the oceans in our activities. So it's being insulted in many ways, and it's nowhere near uh, an international consciousness. So I said it's an unfair question, it is, uh, but on the other hand, that needs to be asked. So do keep, it's fair, I mean, it seems to me that what I, the reason I talk about this uh, kind of problem is, I think we, as citizens, we need to really <coughs> work at it. This is, this, uh, that's the liberal solution that you were asking for, but I can't think of any other, it's not going to come from some directive, because there's nobody to do it. It has to come from the next generation, because my generation is basically screwed yours. <laughs> and you're, you're going to do that to the next one, by the way. Okay, where do we go next? Uh, far up, we haven't been to the back benches, to make the people with the microphone walk a little bit. Yeah, gentleman with the blue jumper. Maybe let's sort of stay in that neighbourhood a little bit. The then And I was very disappointed by your lecture because you didn't answer the question. Sailing under false pretenses. Right? So please don't uh, entitle future lectures until you've got the answer. <laughs> but when you are asked for well, what, what are the solutions, you tentatively talked about contraception, but you didn't mention abortion. Now, abortion is part of the solution. In all the Western countries with liberal abortion laws, their population has become stable or even reduced. So why don't you put that into your calculation? Thank you very much for asking. Um, I did answer the question. Okay, let, let him answer the question. But I would... Um, I believe, again, you're, you like this young man uh, being unfair. <laughs> because I think I answered the question. I didn't say, how do we get to the population that the Earth can support in uh, reasonable comfort? I asked, how many people can Earth support in comfort? Reasonable comfort. Or comfort. Uh, the policy is where I really am uh, weak. It's not my strength. And uh, partly because actually I spend an awful lot of time working on this sort of stuff. So getting this analysis approximately right is, uh, I thought you would say, well done. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, uh, 
the facilities that are available by the family planning agencies, of course, uh, will, should include the right of a woman, given our understanding of uh, when the fetus becomes a person. It is a long-standing debate, but it's not, nobody says it's pre-conception, right? Then maybe not one minute, etc. So there is room there. I've been involved in this discussion a lot, by the way. So, uh, but it is contentious, and, and bear with me for a minute. It's not a question of avoiding it, because if you believe in rights, you do. But on the other hand, I guess okay. I can. I, I think. I'm moved by the many discussions I've had on these problems, and I say quite a number actually, with people of different belief system. And so I'm somewhat sensitive to see how to guide the discussion through a terrain which is mutually understandable and acceptable. That's the first shot. You are unquestionably right, quite apart from numbers. Here we are talking about women's rights. So I'm with you on that. I'm not. But I'm not, you know, whether it makes a huge difference to fertility, it, you may, may well do so, in which case it really should be on the table. But on the, on the other hand, I have skirted it usually because I really want to find common ground with as many people <coughs> as possible because the problems I've been identifying here and a way of thinking about it seems to me to be something that pretty much anybody should accept as a reasonable way of cutting into this dilemma with which I began, which is the mismatch between demand and supply and the fact that we're doing extremely well. Now, I think that you'll probably think that was a very weak defense, but that's the best I can do. I do, yeah. <laughs> okay, where do we go next? There's the lady there in, in the middle, right at the top. That's you. Uh, just a, can you all hear me? Just a comment. I'm horrified at hearing abortion described as either murder or the solution. I would say that uh, abortion is simply a failure of contraception and should be viewed in that light. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that. Let's just go two rows back. There's, uh, there's another hand up there. Uh, the, the lady just right behind you. Hi, my name is Zuhu and I'm 19 years old and you mentioned how it's up to our generation to solve the environmental like issues but with all the like problems going on in the world at the moment how do you see that um, like the focus on the environment becoming a priority because we're, we're met with issues such as like we're met with the immediate effects of environmental issues like famines and like hurricanes and how do you see young people becoming more interested and focused and prioritizing environmental issues? Because um, the effects are like in the future; it's not instant. Oh, well, that's, that's a tough one. Um, very good one. Um, I wouldn't be hard the way you are being to about young people. I wouldn't use words like selfishness because I don't think that's what's in operation here. What's in operation here is the fact that our activities have consequences which are, at the individual level, very often unintended. 
and they're unintended, but nevertheless it's happening because of these externalities, the, mis the institution failure. We are now, however, one, just pointed out a few minutes ago, you have access to a technology which can bring collective action far more easily than it to be at my time. You, you, you blog, you have Twitter, you have God knows how many ways of communicating with thousands of people. And if these issues become central, as I hope they will be soon, amongst the young, not saying what the solution is, or not saying we are all greedy and so forth. No, this is, this, we are trashing Earth collectively. What do we do now? What do we say to our MPs or senators or congressmen or whoever? Um, I can't see any other way because global, these are global initiatives and they cannot come without pressure. And I've seen the carbon story, carbon, uh, the CO2 story, over a 30-year period and see how gradually it's been built up. Trouble is that it's been very slow. And I, the data that I have in front, I mean, the one I just shared with you, suggests so we shouldn't, you know, it's not one of those things we can say, well, all right, by the next 50 years, we'll sort that next one out. It really has to be uh, something that you get policymakers to take seriously, governments to take seriously, because in some sense, the engine of action is there. Or if not the federal government and the states. In the United States at the moment, there are at least 12 states which are behaving in accordance or moving in accordance with Paris, California being the most prime one. And they have the ability to do that, even though the nation doesn't. But it seems to me that's the way to go because it's the, you know, I don't want, it's not melodramatic because it's a fact. The, Biosphere is going to be inherited by your children. And keep on trashing it, and there's not going to be much of a biosphere for them, too. And the consequences are some of them you have already gleaned from the carbon debate, heat waves, and so forth. I mean, that's sort of standard now. You can, you can parrot it. But the problems that will occur in, in 50, 60 years' time if uh, the uh, central pollinators are affected. Insects disappear. In, 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 I don't mean disappear entirely, but such chunks of the population. Then it bodes really bad for the, the, the global agricultural system too. And we don't know which, where it's going to hit, by the way. Ecology is a very underfunded subject, discipline. So they're very much in uh, ignorance of, they recognize patterns, they certainly understand processes, but quantitatively, and the speed at which things take place, are something which they're not very sure of. I hang out a lot with ecologists, that's why I'm sort of repeating what they've told me. But it seems to me that's where the young can do is don't worry about selfishness and so forth. It's just that we are collectively trashing Earth, and uh, what do we do about it? And the action, I think, should be at the level of local politics uh, to get them in, to get it. And a few of you might even enter politics. And why not? Okay, if you're very quick, we have time for one more. There's a very insistent hand right at the back, uh, gentleman in the grey jumper. And then we have to stop. Good evening, thank you um, for coming. You mentioned everything was cooked up at the beginning. Sorry. So I, I, you mentioned at the beginning of the talk everything was cooked up, which made me wonder if this was Cambridge Footlights or um, you actually belong to Cambridge Apostles, who 
while the secret society have included many of the main leading eugenicists in the United Kingdom, including Maynard Keynes, who was the director of the British Eugenic Society for uh, a number of years. So I was wondering how much of eugenics um, theory and being part of the secret society has influenced your... Um, <laughs> because I've, the, all the way through you spoke of just absolute... Uh, Mary? Actually, not at all. Not one bit. Because at the time I was a member, which was for two years, I guess, or three years, um, the, uh, this is a... Um, it's a secret society, is just the wrong way of putting it, it's an undergraduate discussion group. Uh, I mean, I can speak about it because when, when you retire, the only reason it was kept secret is that it was so, so uh, exclusive. People, kids wanted to join it. So this was a way of not being uh, lobbied. It's an intellectual. But Russell, Whitehead, Wittgenstein, Ramsey, the whole lot were members. Strachey, Wolf, uh, not Virginia, Raspberry. They, they, they were all members of the Apostle. But they, uh, the discussions depend, uh, are very functions of the membership. At my time, mostly there were, there were about three economists, two historians, and a few biologists. Uh, and we talked about philosophical problems like scientific method, and of course, when you're very young, 18, 19, or 20, you talk a lot about yourself, your worries and your and so forth. Ramsey had a very famous uh, essay, which was reproduced some years ago, uh, pretty much immediately after his death, called, Is There Anything to Discuss? So I don't think eugenics had anything to do with it. I don't really know... Ramsey was a eugenicist as well. Beg your pardon? Ramsey was a eugenicist. Could be. I just haven't seen any of the writings on that. I only know his savings paper and his taxation paper. <laughs> it's good to, good to stick to the economics. Let's, uh, at that point, uh, our time is, is up. So let me thank Partha both for uh, the...